Well, I'd like to welcome everyone to the third of the Conscious in the Cloud talks. The pleasure of uh, introducing Rhys Jones this evening. Rhys attended our second talk and promptly discussed that we return to the format of the first talk. So Rhys is going to be presenting a few slides, I believe, and then we'll be getting into some discussion. So I hope you came with plenty of ideas, plenty of thoughts, plenty of uh, provocative things to say. This is all being recorded. I will release it in an audio podcast. I'll be providing the video to Reese. He can do with what he will with the video. But I'll also be roving through the audience with mics. So if you'd like to talk, because it is being recorded, please raise your hand and I'll come around with a, a mic and pass it on to you. Oh, <laughs> it's been one of those days. I'm Tom Barbelay. Um, I work at Netflix. I'm also the creator of the Noble Ape Simulation, uh, which is an artificial life project that I've been running now for about 17 years, uh, very much looking now at ideas of distributed consciousness, um, ideas of language narrative, these kind of things is what I'm working on currently. Uh, and I started this talk as an ability to... There was a series of talks called Graytham that were in the Bay Area. In fact, it was an international phenomena from the Netherlands, the UK... Uh, Boston, uh, the Bay Area, we have Zangill and the folks who attended uh, the Grey Thumbs, maybe, maybe a couple of other Grey Thumbers, maybe not. Um, so, yeah, I was very much inspired by the Grey Thumb talks, but I thought because um, the nature of cloud computing is providing just a, an amazing kind of tapestry for folks who are dealing already with um, bottom-up intelligence models, uh, that this was a perfect event to bring some of the people that I knew uh, and some of the people from the kind of broader cloud community uh, together in these discussions. So we've had two so far, and Reese is going to set off the third. So th this is the third uh, meetup on consciousness in the cloud, and uh, this is a relatively new thing, obviously, um, and it's intended to be a discussion, and... I'm going to run through a few slides to set some context coming maybe from a biology point of view um, as to uh, uh, that might provoke some uh, interesting conversation. The um, premise I'm operating from is that the Internet is already conscious and we're just not conscious of that. Um, uh, I'm open to disagreement. Um, the uh, um, and so the question is if uh, the internet is part of the ecosystem of the planet and both are conscious at a level that we as elements of that can't understand the question is is that consciousness evolving and in what way are we evolving as part of that um, and this uh, is predicated on a few assumptions of what's necessary for consciousness um, in the way that, that it's talked about. And uh, these are the ones that I'll sort of set forth um, quickly here that we can talk about, but being non-deterministic elements that are differentiated with a certain level of complexity, uh, and this sets up for a, a global organism uh, and there's a few things that um, are test cases in biological organisms that when you're trying to do a computer simulation of consciousness or conscious life, um, 
for it to be similar to biology, they have to work, and I'll touch on those. And then um, uh, in the evolution of things and complexity, uh, one of the characteristics of evolution is speciation, where um, two different directions going from a, a single origin. So as I mentioned, uh, in my opinion, internet is already conscious. Um, and the question is, if that's the case, why would we be aware of that at all? Um, any more than the cell in our finger are aware of what we're talking about right now. That is sort of a, a presumption, uh, anthropocentric presumption that we as humans are the highest form of consciousness that there is and that um, uh, we're aware of levels of consciousness uh, beyond our, our own. Um, so the characteristics of the Internet, of course, there's uh, already billions of processors, billions of sensors on those processors, billions of people on the Internet. So the Internet... Um, already has a billion people on it, so it's at least as smart and as conscious as a billion people, and that people are an indivisible element of the Internet the way it functions now. There's trillions of interconnections, um, and as the Internet of Things is, as some people like to call it, is evolving, there's more and more um, simple things being attached as elements of the Internet. Um, and then there's billions of things. Um, and people aren't the only things that are uh, being attached to the Internet um, uh, through uh, synthetic biology and other ways of thinking about biology. There's billions of living things that uh, can be converted from data into life or life back into data. And this whole collection is a complex ecosystem. And the main distinction uh, that I run into dealing with people who come at this kind of stuff from the computer side versus those who come from the biology side is the fundamental, uh, um, almost ideological split is that uh, from computer engineering, you, you come with the point of view that things are deterministic and you can program and control things and, uh, and you can actually determine the outcome uh, which comes from a point of view of physics and math um, and is an a attractive assumption, but it doesn't really work in biophysics or in biology or in chemistry um, or into quantum effects and so forth in that um, biology is basically analog and computers being digital and analog is not the same as digital. You can use digital to approximate analog but the dynamics in the subtleties are different, which may mean that the dynamics at scale are different. So uh, some of you have probably seen this Edward Tufte uh, graph of um, uh, brain-body ratio of uh, uh, different species, where from small into large, the uh, um, brain... Um, to body ratio is, is kind of a measure of, of intelligence, but it's a, um, the different kinds of um, somewhat sentient species fall along a line with a 
slope of uh, three quarters. And um, you notice there's nothing in the upper left-hand side of this chart, which is interesting in that there's evolutionists selected kind of a, a boundary or a barrier that uh, being smarter than above that line doesn't seem to have any evolutionary persistence. So it may not be of, of value to be extra smart beyond that line. Um, so I, from the point of view of a, of a global planet, um, the, uh, um, the human um, uh, um, uh, body is a lot more um, of the data that makes up a person and how a person thinks and feels and so forth in their brain. Uh, the, from the point of view of a person, we think about our brain as being the, the center point of, of our consciousness, but uh, it may not be the case. And the same three-quarter slope, also uh, Jeffrey West from Santa Fe Institute uh, predicted um, a, uh, a, brain, a body size um, to essentially respiration rate. And so a, uh, a larger organism... Uh, like a whale, um, has a very slow heart rate and a very slow breathing rate, and, uh, and a mouse or a hummingbird or a bat has a much faster heart rate and breathing rate. And if you extend this three-quarter uh, line uh, on the double exponential curve up further to uh, uh, buildings and cities, um, they also have a respiration rate and a heart rate where if you consider the commute hour into a city and out of a city, uh, it's somewhat predictive, similar along the same ratio of, of uh, size to pace, um, which is also a little bit predictive of longevity. Um, so a city and a human are... Um, sort of a complex system that has a, a, a respiration, a, a breathing, um, and other characteristics. Uh, rainforest is another example of a, of a very complex system that has its own rhythms and paces. And one of the interesting things in a rainforest is most of the signaling channels are full with at least one species, and very often the, uh, what's evolved is for species to be sharing signaling channels, so frogs and birds tweeting on the same frequency, but in a code that uh, doesn't get confused between them. Um, other examples of complexity with diversity is, is coral reefs, for example, but all of these likely share some elements of a, of a respiration cycle, uh, an awake-sleep cycle, um, uh, some way of reproduction and how they evolve over time and then how they speciate into different things. So the important element about a human is that most of the cells in a human actually don't have human DNA. They're, um, uh, we're born with mostly human DNA, but what uh, the by the number of cells in our body um, that are microbes or viruses or bacteria or fungi uh, outnumbers the number of uh, human DNA cells. And so 
some of the elements of consciousness are likely not only in the brain, just as um, uh, our, our keeping track of our breathing or our digestion is not in our conscious mind. And so it's a more complex system with um, more diffused elements. There's not a central processor, if you will. Um, part of this complexity um, from an evolutionary point of view is a, um, evolution from undifferentiated cells to differentiated cells, where for uh, a couple billion years was prokaryotes, which are single-cell organisms that essentially have one container. And the sort of unique leap in biological evolution was going from prokaryotes to eukaryotes. And the fundamental difference is a eukaryote has a cell within a cell, uh, so a mitochondria inside a cell, and both reproduce together and form more complex structures. But that uh, um, multiprocessor um, element is an important thing about how um, biological life evolved. And for those trying to do simulated life or simulated uh, consciousness or intelligence, um, there's uh, this complexity is uh, maybe a necessary element that it can't be done with simple homogeneous processors. Um, the uh, way connected uh, um, cells evolve into differentiated cells is there's the physical connection of the cells pushing against each other, which is a communication mechanism. There's the way the nutrients and waste are routed around. There's uh, some element of a, an immune system of self and other. Um, there's signaling through chemistry, uh, electrical, optical, and, and then a, a big difference in a, cellular, a complex cellular life system uh, from many of the computer simulations is there are global signals equivalent to hormones that aren't regularly put into simulations. Um, in differentiated cells, as I mentioned, just to gloss over this, is, is there's compartments uh, within cells that have special function or within a body, organ systems. Uh, and in those organ systems, there's local regulation. So in the liver has different rules uh, if you're a cell in a liver than if you're a cell in a finger. And the cells in your finger and in your liver have the genetics to become a tooth. And sometimes of their uh, apparent free will, they decide to mutate and become a tooth uh, in the middle of your liver or in the middle of your finger, and that's called a cancer. And that uh, uh, is locally regulated in biology uh, where the uh, immune system um, regulates that uh, in the, to be in conformance with the local rules. So if you extend that thinking into politics or whatever, uh, and different uh, regions of the planet have different areas of specialization and whether there should be local rules rule as an immune system or a global system that uh, regulates things is a, an open question, but probably a combination of local plus global um, it will evolve. The... Um, uh, Signaling can also either be local, and a lot of uh, the connectome project is 
looking at the electrical signals that in the brain, which are a, a tiny fraction of the signaling that's going on uh, between neurons and between cells, where most of it is uh, chemical. Uh, neurotransmitters are triggering the electrical signals, and um, the things that are expressed um, uh, metabolically are having much larger effects than just the electrical signals. And then if in this uh, ecosystem of a body or a, a city, or a, um, uh, there's um, multiple different uh, diversity of species or diversity of organs uh, located in either a symbiotic way or a parasitic way. And uh, things that are, um, for example, microbes in our intestine that are normally healthy to be there can turn parasitic uh, if the ratios change. So in this chemistry versus bits, um, uh, sort of analog versus digital or uh, statistical versus deterministic um, uh, way of thinking, there's a, a couple tests that you can do if you're trying to do synthetic life or synthetic uh, intelligence. artificial intelligence um, where in a non-deterministic system, uh, like a, a human body, there are slow-wave chemicals that affect all the cells uh, in different ways. So, for example, um, uh, hormones uh, affect all the cells over a long cycle, and there are uh, things like cutting off the oxygen. Somebody will change their consciousness very rapidly, or adding in uh, chemicals like alcohol or nitrous oxide will change things globally. So a computer simulation that is trying to uh, emulate the way the brain works simply by its electrical connections uh, has to have some way, if it's going to be similarly intelligent to a human, it has to have some way to respond to these global variable type things uh, of which there are many. Um, and so sort of at the interface between um, digital and analog, some of you have seen this perhaps, that the digital is, is deterministic and the analog is doing a lot of processing too and they're working in conjunction. But the analog has a little bit of extra free will that uh, has it sometimes behave in unpredictable ways. <laughs> so... Um, to, to try and uh, sort of wrap this up a little bit from an introduction point of view that uh, also open with the premise that consciousness is a continuum uh, from uh, non-consciousness to uh, fully alert and awake. And I might put awake on top of flow states, but uh, there's being sleepy, there's being asleep, there's dreaming, uh, uh, which is sort of running simulations, that are uh, checking memories. Um, there's housekeeping, uh, fixing errors from your, your day's experience to match the memories that you've had. Um, and then there's uh, coma states and there's uh, what we call biological death. And this is like a dial. Uh, maybe it goes to 11, but it's still an analog dial. Uh, and people go up and down this continuum based on chemistry and a lot of other factors. So this um, picture um, is a picture of um, all the uh, um, uh, IP 
version 4 um, router traffic globally on the internet. And it's a 24-hour picture. And if you look at it, the, uh, um, the activity, the red and yellow activity, moves around the Earth with the, awake, the sunlight and the awakeness of the humans. And so there's local activity in those routers that are uh, essentially the awake state or the busy state. Uh, and the blue on the chart are where there's less traffic in those routers. Um, however, there's little hot spots of, of red within the blue, which is some elements of, uh, essentially, this is the Internet being awake and asleep as it goes around the Earth. And there's uh, uh, where the activity is, is um, um, the fast connections to people while they're awake and busy, and then the slow sort of uh, uh, housekeeping uh, consolidation stuff that happens uh, in the night, um, synchronizing servers and such. So the, uh, these elements uh, may also be, of, of from awake to sleep uh, to death, may also be true in terms of a biological uh, internet. So that's sort of the, as an introduction there is this concept of non-determinism, uh, differentiated elements, um, complexity, the global scale, uh, and the implications of that. Some of the uh, test things from biology as that relate for testing consciousness or experimenting with consciousness. Um, and then uh, speciation may be interesting to talk about. So that's the introduction. Thank you, Reese. So do we have any questions? I might kick it off, Reese, as I have the microphone to start off with. These kind of discussions have gone through the artificial life community for a long period of time. One of my favorites is the fact that we aren't having a discussion associated with automobile manufacturer, associated with how it should be more like horses or more like humans. We've come to a place where we're perfectly comfortable with cars being entities that get us places considerably better than our bodies. And we don't have any biological metaphors associated with cars, although you can draw them. This model is very interesting in terms of your discussion of biology. And I think people who've explored um, particularly neurochemistry and these kind of things have created amazing models of intelligence, but they haven't created the only models. Can you talk a little bit about, or actually, can you go back a slide maybe to your list and talk about the various weightings that you would see in terms of the internet. I mean, do you see the internet in biological models or do you see it in terms of complexity or these kind of things being stronger and an equal determination of consciousness and potentially life? Well, from my point of view, the internet is almost equal parts biological life from a billion humans attached to it uh, and phones and computers and servers uh, and, and the wires connecting them in that the internet's most of its activity now is a combination of biological activity and electronic activity. Um, and there are, um, so in some sense, if you imagine each of the cells of our body having a mitochondria that's inside the cells that's evolved to be an essential part of our genetics, it's its own organism with its own separate genome that is part of all of our cells, and it replicates with the cells, and we wouldn't function without it. 
the way that's interesting for me to think about is that we as human beings are like mitochondria inside the internet in that the internet wouldn't really function as a complex system without millions of humans making sure that it's working. Certainly. So it seems like so I, I don't buy the idea that the internet is anywhere close to even as complex as a single human being because there are five orders of magnitude in terms of the count of the number of connections and units in the internet compared to a single human body. Right? You have 10 to the 13 in a human body versus 10 to the 9 that's inside the internet right now. So it's five orders of magnitude. But even that being the case, maybe I'm missing a term of definition between consciousness versus living. It seems like you're going in a potential direction of proving that the internet might be alive, which would be an interesting discussion to have, but I don't see any kind of evidence in the discussion so far that would be to say that it is conscious, meaning to be that it would, say it would be self-aware in some meaningful way, mm-hmm. where I could have that discussion with you about a dolphin, I could have that discussion with you about a crow, <laughs> the famous recent um, video of, with the crow solving puzzles and stuff like that. But... And also to say that the internet, and I know these are a lot of questions, that's the main question, but as a, as a corollary to that, you talk about humans as being equivalent to mitochondria, but then you also say that the internet is intelligent because it has the intelligence of a billion human beings. I, my intelligence or your intelligence has nothing to do with the level of intelligence of a mitochondria or even an individual cell. The two have no relationship to one another. Our consciousness is emergent that comes from who we are as an aggregated being and has nothing to do with the intelligence of a single cell or the intelligence of mitochondria. So the intelligence of a human being as an input into the internet has no bearing on whether or not it's intelligent or conscious. If what you're saying is true, you may be going in a direction of saying it's alive, but I don't see any discussion that would lead us into the direction of saying that it is conscious. Uh, so that's cool. Thoughts. Um, I mean, on the whole, the, the first orders of magnitude issues is um, uh, it's true that the I agree that the internet is is much simpler in terms of its element complexity than the the connections inside a, a single person. If you don't count the people that are in the internet, if you count the billion people that are in the internet as highly interconnected elements of the internet, you add their complexity to the dynamics of the internet. So the order of magnitude calculation is, is an interesting way to think about it. If you include the, the humans and uh, they're there. And then the aspect of consciousness we could have the same discussion about is, is the palm tree less conscious than the dog, which is less conscious than the human, um, and an intelligence aside. Um, like that's to me, what I'm trying to describe as sort of a continuum of awareness where a grove of redwoods might be conscious of where the water is or, or things that, that we're not so much paying attention to. Um, and, but it's a consciousness in a sense of, uh, it's a living structure that has, um, uh, resistance to entropy. And some of the things that, it metabolically does is to resist entropy and respond to its environment. And so that's a, a big stretch of using the word conscious 
but that's sort of turning the dial way to the left. In a but sense. crystal would be conscious in some sense then according to that definition, yeah? That's quite possible. The paleobiologist Roy Plotnick, who has appeared in the recordings that this will go into, talks about survival as being the metric of intelligence, which removes yourself from the anthropomorphic nature that consciousness has. And if you look at um, the Precambrian and the Early Cambrian and the way organisms irk their way towards food centres, that was the first encoding of survivability in life. But there are parallels of survivability in what we would traditionally think of as being non-living systems. The redwoods are an interesting kind of cross-example. But it's interesting when you talk about consciousness with regards to machines, you need to move away from the anthropomorphic nature of your perception of consciousness in order to get a greater understanding. And that, for many, is very difficult. But with you, when you work with these systems for long periods of time, you start to realize that survivability is actually a kind of lower-rung metric of intelligence, and you can develop an interesting framing of consciousness within that metric. So, so I'll buy the continuum for the moment. So the question is, um, you began by saying that you think that the Internet is conscious today, and um, I'm wondering um, what you saw there that convinced you that, and when did you decide it was, I mean, when did this happen? Was it last year or two years ago or a decade ago? And what level of, on the, on the continuum would you say it is right now? Well, from a um, homebrew phone hacking background of old, um, that the complexity of the phone network, even as touchtone automatic switching was introduced, started to have elements of, of uh, emergent systems behavior that um, uh, wasn't easy to predict. And part of what made it hard to predict, you know, as a node at a single phone sending tones into the complexity, was uh, in that complexity were humans tweaking the system to respond to what was happening. And so in some sense, the as the complexity of the global phone network and power grid has increased and you add faster signaling, which is essentially Internet, um, the complexity of the uh, system as a whole is increasing at, at a rapid pace. And the, the way it behaves is feels, to me, increasingly biological as a system in that if you poke it, it responds um, and the response is a combination of the, the power and the sensors and the uh, signaling, but also there's some humans in there uh, uh, responding in some way, either pre-programmed or, or live. So it seems like there's a continuum of life, there's a continuum of intelligence, there's a continuum of consciousness, right? Are those, is that one continuum, or are we talking about three different continuums? It's kind of his question is like, You've just described how it's becoming biological and maybe more lifelike. Um, but are, is this a con so is this the same continuum where we have it's kind of it's more and more lifelike? Is it also becoming more and more intelligent? Is it also becoming more and more conscious? Are they, is this a single continuum or are these three parallel continuums? Well, so I, I would agree with your technium concept of it being a, a single continuum. Um, that the whether the elements are biochemical or electrical that it's uh, complexity evolving. 
that may have evolved for a long time. Uh, there's an interesting um, projection of whether or not something is alive going from prokaryotes to eukaryotes to complex uh, plants and animals. If you project uh, that on a double exponential graph back in time, the um, humans, uh, animals, plants, um, eukaryotes and prokaryotes project back uh, over uh, four and a half billion years. If you keep projecting that back to where the complexity of what is a, a prokaryote or a eukaryote today, um, and you project that back to where does it intersect zero, like when did it originate, it's intersect zero at somewhere like 10 billion years ago. And the Earth is only four and a half billion years old. And so the um, prokaryote single cell life on Earth, the complexity of it is um, such that it's at a, a level of complexity that it unlikely originated here. Um, and that it, the projection back to the intersection of zero um, may have errors in it. It may be a slightly super exponential curve. And so if you project that back, it could actually project back to 13 billion years ago, which would, of course, is the Big Bang, and that the, the zero point of sort of the anti-entropic characteristic of life um, may be originated near the origin of matter, and that it's evolved along this somewhat super exponential curve for 13 billion years to where it is now. And we're experiencing what, how it's manifest locally, but it might be different in other locations. Does that make, answer your thought or? Um, not really, but um, I mean, there's also the possibility that, that uh, ex backward extrapolation, what if it showed it 20 billion years? Well, um, the people who've done that, I can't remember their names right offhand, but they, uh, their extrapolation went back to eight or nine billion years. But if you look at these exponential curves, most of them, Moore's Law even, seem to have a, a slightly upward bend to them, or Cooper's Law or whatnot. And so there's another factor in the equation that is leading not to just a simple linear uh, exponential growth, that so if you take that into account, you would uh, forecast it back f further than nine billion years to more like thirteen billion years um, as a thought and there's another element that sort of addresses both of this life non life or intelligent non intelligent conscious with that there's um, this normal human instinct to be dualistic and to think this is different than that, and that there's a hard line in between. And for me, that uh, uh, I think of things more as being on a continuum and where's the shades of gray in between rather than the on-off switch. So the dis distinction between uh, is a crystal alive or a rock versus a, um, a microbe in the rock, um, that's sort of a continuum. And in particular, this when interacting with biologists, um, there's the discussion about whether or not a virus is alive, and that a virus is a very, or a, or a prion, 
in that viruses and prions are very simple molecular forms of life, in my opinion, but they can't live without a complex organism reproducing them on their behalf. Um, so some biologists would argue that viruses and prions are not alive um, and because they're dependent on other life to reproduce. But then again, people are dependent on food to reproduce. So it's a similar argument as far as not being a distinction between, or a hard-line distinction between alive and not alive. It seems that a lot of this boils down to personal opinion, not scientific rigor with regards to the way we draw some of these lines. You know, so for example, I have what would potentially be an equally valid perspective on the topic, which means that consciousness would be relating more to the survivability aspect, and in particular with regards to the ability of an organism to contemplate the future in a meaningful way. And so when I hear consciousness, that's what I think about. But that's an ascientific way of looking at it, right? It's, a, it's an opinion. There's no, there's no scientific rigor I can apply to, to justify my perspective. And in fact, there is no consensus about the definition of what consciousness actually means today. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that sort of what informs this list and the hierarchy of this list in that uh, like somebody enlightened and awake may be more conscious than somebody who is merely awake who uh, is seeking and uh, idle, basically, uh, which may be more active frontal lobe conscious than somebody who's in a flow state um, uh, that uh, is more conscious than somebody who is sleepy or asleep, who are more conscious than somebody who's in a coma or under anesthesia. And so the same physical person is at different levels of consciousness at different times of day. Um, and, and it looks as though from this... Chart. The internet is similar. Ah, see, there's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, we are actually sitting here in a model of consciousness because the most probably the traditional model of consciousness is the theater, and here we are uh, interacting with each other, probably following a process very much like what we're doing when we're thinking and interacting with each other. And so, what I, I, when listening to what you're saying and stuff, when I think a um, a uh, good model of consciousness is that there's, uh, I'm going to call it a phenomenological boundary between you know, the external world and an internal world and the process which tries to create a model inside the, of, in the internal world of what's going on in the external world. And that that process is what consciousness is. And by that definition, of course, uh, the Internet's doing it. And probably even a you know, microbe that kind of is following a gradient is doing it if it has some sort of internal model of, of which way to go. Yeah, that's an interesting concept of uh, internal and external models. Um, I sort of glossed over the concept of quorum sensing, which is how communities of bacteria uh, make decisions as a group in that they're uh, increasing the concentration of the signaling molecule between them. And when it gets to a certain level, they all do something together. Like they say, let's make this dude sneeze so we can get on to the next person. Um, and that's a, a decision-making, a consciousness, where the elements are acting as a group, but the decision-making is a chemical that's flowing between the elements. Uh, so it's not really an internal thing, it's an external thing. And it's a, like a group election in, in that sense. And then this internal-external predicting the future is like the classical definition of 
of consciousness and intelligence and whatnot. Uh, and so that, um, you know, whether uh, like my dog can predict that I'm going to come home and give it dinner uh, or not, it seems to me that it is assuming I'm going to come home. Um. The model as you describe is exactly the early model that I used in Noble Ape to create the simulation, both in terms of the external world and the internal world. The additional component was language. And I think we have a very high level view of what consciousness is. But if you look at the day-to-day human experience, a lot of it is predicated on language. So irrespective of how complex we are as organisms, we are running a linguistic program. So whether we're programmed by Allah or Dawkins or what have you, we're running a program. And that is a very interesting view of consciousness, particularly in terms of the internet. But I, I like your description because it's exactly what I started with, with Noble Ape, in terms of those being the, the fundamentals of looking at consciousness. You're raising some really interesting questions. Um, it seems to me that to start to untangle the Gordian knot, that you have to start with evolution, because evolution has been shown to occur in non-living systems. And evolution then then brings about emergence. And it seems to me that then the distinction between non-life and life lies at that moment when the struggle for existence can begin. Because non-life doesn't struggle for existence. And so once you have the struggle for existence and the force of evolution, and then these continual levels of... of um, uh, aggregates becoming individuals, the idea of Leo, Leo Bus. Um, this question of when do, does that arise, uh, uh, turn into something we could call consciousness? Um, it seems to me, I mean, we could debate what, what consciousness really is. Your definition seems like a good one, but, but, uh, one might equate consciousness as some level of capacity to struggle for existence and make that connection. So that essential element of struggle for existence um, uh, is a linguistic thing, assuming a kind of a motivation. Well, that was that was Darwin's the third chapter of Origin of Species. Yeah. And that's the, the which he intended to develop more. Yeah. And it seems to me that that's the part that we have tended to miss in um, our um, overly simplistic view of Darwinian evolution as random variation and environmental selection. Uh, we've forgotten that there's the struggle for existence. And yes. A number of biologists are bringing that back, like Kirshner and Gerhardt, mm-hmm. um, with their theory of facilitated variation. Um, but that is the core directionality. And so then the question is, when you look at the Internet, um, I think you can find a whole series of connections, say speciation, I think you can find analogs to speciation in the internet, um, uh, a, a range of evolutionary processes in the internet. And the question is, um, then where would you say that there was a co- coherent struggle for existence? Right? Yeah, I mean, um, well, the internet network. needs electricity. Um, and so there, it has a, a struggle to get electricity and it induces the humans, much like a flower induces a bee, to bring it electricity. Um, so in, in that sense, it, it is making it known uh, to the humans what it needs. Um, and the humans eat it. And it's a symbiotic relationship? That's a, it, 
it makes your making these language leaps about saying the internet decides. Please give an example of how the internet is inducing human beings' behavior. I can see how humans are delivering electricity to the internet, but how is because the internet is being used by the humans? But I don't see how the internet is inducing the humans to do so. So we're here in the Netflix headquarters building, and Netflix um, uh, delivers entertainment to humans, and they deliver it over the internet plumbing that is in part controlled by Comcast, and Comcast is trying to maintain control of their plumbing and deliver competing entertainment to Netflix, and they were in a struggle as far as how that was done and eventually came to an equilibrium where Netflix now gives Comcast money to have their entertainment to the humans delivered uh, faster. Um, and so the humans were saying that the internet is not behaving the way they want it to behave with regard to delivery of Netflix. The element that was not cooperating, the barrier was Comcast and the, the result was sort of a, a chemical equilibrium, if you will, of these different elements to the amount of money that's paid to deliver the movies in an acceptable way. But what you just described are human beings negotiating with each other to secure a limited resource, which is cash, right? They're, they're negotiating with each other and using this medium to do so. In no sense was the medium itself the motivator. In the same argument, I could say that the uh, zeros and ones in my bank account are inducing me to go and earn money, right? So that they can have more friends to reproduce, so that I can put them into a mutual fund and they will grow and reproduce by the same logic. And, and it's, yeah, it's, but yeah. it's me. I'm doing it. It's not the money. Doing it's it's it. kind of provocative what I'm saying, right? Um, the, uh, I'm just asking you to make the case. So, so one, some of there's uh, some underlying um, uh, phenomenology uh, of this exponential growth, in that most people are familiar with Moore's law of uh, exponential pace of of processing size, which turns out to be processing power. But the uh, there's a similar law, Marty Cooper's law, who invented the cell phone that is also an exponential curve going back 100 years from Morse code on the Titanic to, you know, G4 phones with uh, watching movies, um, uh, uh, fitting a pretty straight exponential line. And these exponential technologies, uh, you know, as Kevin sort of points out, may be emergent kind of uh, phenomena, evolutionary emergent phenomena, uh, leading to increasing complexity and the complexity is of the complex system, which might have chemical elements and human elements and plant elements and copper and fiber and uh, different materials, but it's becoming a, a more complex organism or structure or something that is resisting entropy to fall apart um, and is uh, directing resources to keep it together or, in, in fact, improve it exponentially. But by that argument, you're simply saying that humanity as a collective entity is becoming a new organism and that the internet is a means by which, the, by which humanity is becoming a new collective organism, which is an interesting thought, but that has nothing to do with the intelligence or connectivity or the, 
you're, you're basically giving conscious attribution to the medium when it's not the medium. It's the elements that are on the medium, which in this case are the human beings. Take away the human beings and there is nothing. That's take away the, the machinery and you don't have it either. So, yes, so we, this is an interesting man-machine symbiotic system. And I think but that's the point. complexity is inherent in the universe. We could go and get a, you know, and run a, a rule. I forgot what it is. But anyway, there's a, the, you talk about what um, Wolfram came up with with regards to the cellular automata classes, right? And you have the chaotic cellular automata classes, class three, if I'm not mistaken. With a very simple set of rules, you can create a very, even though it's deterministic, you cannot predict the outcome. So there's the join between organics and non-organics. So... I don't know. I feel like we're talking about the medium, not the thing. Okay. Um, I kind of agree that the medium here is the internet and the organism still the human. But the fact is we are at an inflection point where the traffic on the internet is quickly going to turn away from being dominated by human action at the time and into thousands and millions and billions of sensors and actuators in M2M, machine-to-machine communication, at which point the Internet becomes a medium of communication for a lot of dumb devices. And, and the percentage of traffic generated by human beings is going to pale in comparison. So at what point does the organism change at that? But all of those devices are at the behest of human beings. So the, the humans are still the motive force. right? The, the human will... The, the, the sensor that is deployed in my backyard, for example, that um, is sending out weather data to weather underground automatically. I'm just thinking something random, right? Or the stuff that's in my car that is sending data off to Lord knows where, the insurance company or wherever, right? Those are still subject to the human motive force. Yes, the traffic will be very much dominated by the inner connectings of the machines. And in fact, you could even say that now that a lot of the traffic is backup data for financial institutions and you know backing up of the largest user of bandwidth on the internet in whose theater we are sitting today, right? So <laughs> there's all these kinds of things that are non-human generated traffic. And yeah, that will definitely be the case for machines. We're talking to machines. I think it's kind of already the case. And it's already the case these machines we're, we're, are going to be... But we're talking about we're talking about machines that can also eventually have actuators and make things happen on their own. And and now we're we're going right back to the point where you made where a bunch of little small deterministic, rather dumb things interacting start making for something bigger and more complex that has no human interaction with it at that point. Kind of like the stock market does today with uh, robot trading, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, one of the other provocations of uh, I was trying to evoke tonight was uh, that uh, to take humans out of the equation and that this complexity may be an emergent evolutionary thing, whether or not there's humans, um, and that there were complex networks of, uh, you know, hooved animals walking deer trails through the forest before there was humans. Um, and those networks adapted to all kinds of things, and that's a that's a complex network that's adaptive with no human intervention. And humans have a long history of of uh, anthropocentric bias from you know Copernicus to Galileo and so on that uh, um, 
like if we can turn that off for a moment and imagine what if this has nothing to do with us uh, and if this is an emergent behavior that is not driven by human intelligence but following uh, for example agriculture that uh, you know, before there was agriculture um, humans didn't stay in one place very long and agriculture the the plants in a Dawkins way, tricked the humans into staying there and taking care of these plants. And it fed them and changed the species from nomadic to agricultural. And so the force that changed species and, and allowed, you know, 7 billion humans instead of half a billion was um, driven by plants. But that's, again, it's an opinion of perspective. Yes. Right? So yes. it's not a, that's not a, a fact. That's an opinion or perspective, and there's two equally valid ways of interpreting that data point. One is that the humans put the plants in their service. The other is that the plants put the humans in their service, and it depends on your point of view. And so I, I think, I think really this has been a three back and forths on this very topic. <laughs> okay, so I love what you're saying in terms of um, life being a, a, a pattern in time that attempts to repeat itself, and um, an intelligence sort of... I think that we're saying that intelligence is sort of the, the, the density of those patterns um, that are trying to repeat themselves. So is, is, there, is there any sort of cool software out there right now that's trying to um, make the, the, the most dense, flexible patterns that are attempting to repeat themselves um, like a, a more efficient version of Noble Ape or Polyworld? Um, but Tom would be better to answer that. <laughs> I'm working to make the most efficient version of Noble possible. In fact, the whole reason that I started this series of talks actually was because I was looking to move Noble into the cloud. And that was part of the motivation. Basically, it was to bring in cloud people and also talk about Noble in the context of moving it into the cloud. Um, prior to this talk, uh, John and I and, and Reese were discussing this. In fact, I think Reese hadn't arrived yet. But yeah, I'm very interested actually in taking existing artificial life simulations and running them in the cloud. There's a historical legacy with this associated with Tierra as well. Um, Tom Ray was very interested in doing this with Tierra. The cloud technology just wasn't there at the time when he did it. So there's a, there's a kind of legacy history in the artificial life community of trying to do this. And, and I'm very actively interested in the mirror of that, which is how to run things in biochemistry built with synthetic DNA that is plugged into systems that becomes alive. So um, in 2010, the first self-reproducing life form where all of the genetic code came from a computer uh, into, into synthetic DNA booted up as a self-replicating cell by, by Craig Venter, um, that is a a simulation running in biochemistry with the compute elements being the, the code written in DNA and the chemistry that happens around it. Any questions from folks who haven't asked questions so far? Any other questions? No, no? <laughs> 
easy question because I, I think I misunderstood a little bit the objective of the meeting. I thought consciousness is it's human consciousness and we don't care about if the internet is conscious and the frog is conscious and the, so I was thinking about Ray Kurzweil's vision that uh, we have the implant and connect it to the cloud. So the simple question is do you think that at some point my conscious, consciousness can live in the cloud, and what would it take? Um, so I, I know Ray well, and the, um, the concept of my consciousness, um, if my consciousness is in my body right now, and I made a copy of my consciousness in the Internet, there would be two of my consciousnesses. And so in order for there to be only one, one would have to die. And so there's uh, probably no reason you couldn't have my consciousness multiply into many uh, and the other versions of it each would have its own path in a sense. So the um, if you look at... Um, uh, Facebook as uh, a very primitive version of you in the internet. The more data that it has, the more accurately it can appear to other people to be you. Um, in that, as this evolves, um, the way that that we each represent ourselves in the cloud will become more and more sophisticated and become more and more scripted, and it is already becoming a little bit ambiguous whether that entity that you're dealing with online is an actual human, is a human who scripts it and checks it occasionally, is a bot, or isn't a human at all. Um, or are they alive or dead? It's, it's that interface is, is much less clear. And there's a phenomenon that's interesting in that those people that are highly digitized, uh, Elvis Presley, Marilyn Monroe, Michael Jackson, the Beatles, and so forth, are relatively easy to reconstruct the, uh, an experience of interacting with their personality, you know, often in, in Vegas and Cirque du Soleil doing, uh, you know, an experience with one of those characters. The more data they have to work with, the more complete they can have that experience be. In fact, it can be better than dealing with the real person. Um, so more interesting than the alive person. And so, so that, that, that's a phenomenon that, that this sort of exponential representation of what is, who is me and what are the elements of me, um, that's changing. Like Eric Schmidt says that for every person, uh, on, on Earth, there's at least nine versions of uh, online. So most people here have at least five or 20 internet personas. So the population of the internet is actually 50 million, 50 billion people, where the population of biological people is only 7 billion. So it's getting a little confusing as far as what is me. Um, in the present moment, in the past, in the future, and, and that kind of thing. But the, the, the clear distinction is if you have, if I have two copies of me, why does one of them have to die? 
And what happens to the audio of this is it goes on the Internet Archive. And I know for a matter of fact that thousands of people listen to this audio. And over the past 10 years, people have picked up the audio, you know, 10 years after it was recorded and still thought about it. And that is a very interesting phenomena. I mean, pending fires in the Internet Archive, in 100, 200 years' time, this audio could still be available, people could still be listening in, and, you know, maybe siding with, with one of the speakers and then being turned to another speaker. It's a very interesting phenomena, and it's completely beyond what has existed previously, even with the written published word. Absolutely. So, as, um, <clears throat> as this other fellow at the end was speaking, uh, it occurred to me that there's at least three kinds of cloud-based consciousness that have come up this evening. And one is this idea of the kind of the expanded individual consciousness that, you, that this could be augmented the cloud could augment my consciousness by expanding it in some way, either duplicating it or I like to think of it though as an expanded consciousness. So that's one way that you have a cloud consciousness. The second way would be um, that there would be uh, uh, you know, a developed AI, like on the movie Her or a Google AI that is so good that it's a manufactured design AI that becomes conscious. And then there seems to be a third way, which is what you're kind of suggesting, which is this sort of global entity itself, having a kind of global cloud consciousness. So it may be that those three things are not the same. And they could all happen at the same time. But there may even be others. And so maybe that's one of the things we could do, is other, other forms besides those three of global consciousness? Well, I would say uh, you know, plants are another example in that how they exist, where they choose to propagate, where um, how they resist entropy is some form of uh, intelligence or consciousness or, uh, you know... Is it cloud-based? It, well, it, it's the, it goes over the whole planet, so... Um, and and as birds move the seeds from this continent to that continent, or or you know bees, um, you know are are evidently bees are having catastrophic hive deaths on every continent except Australia. So there's something that has diffused across all the other continents that has yet to reach Australia that uh, is interfering with a colony life form where there's a queen bee and there's worker bees and it, a hive, and it works in a, in a hive-type dynamic in the same way we work in a body uh, or we work in a community. But that uh, um, the dynamics of that isn't individual autonomous units. It's interdependent units that are, have some collective agenda or collective survival um, action. Can anyone else imagine a... Electronically cloud-based consciousness, besides the three that I mentioned. Could you summarize the three again? Well, the three aren't... The, the, the three is one, an expanded... Indiv uh, the first one is an expanded individual consciousness. So it's like my consciousness amplified by the ability to um, be augmented with the capability of 
um, sensors around the world, you know, kind of being able to see through uh, other cameras anywhere. So I have I have an expanded global set, uh, being. And the second one is uh, a cloud-based intelligence like uh, the movie Her or Google making something successful that would be a cloud-based intelligence that would be uh, an AI. Or, and then the, or a corporation? Or a corporation. And then the third one is this vision that you were kind of outlining, which is all the, all the artifacts, the billions of sensors and the trillions and quadrillions of uh, CPUs connected together, forming their own emergent global consciousness. Those are the three that I can imagine very easily, but I'm you know, asking uh, uh, which, which ones am I missing? Again, it's not this organic version that you were talking about, but a electronic cloud-based global or cloud-based consciousness. Electronic cloud-based consciousness, which I think is the topic, right? Well, another one would be potentially another one could potentially be free-ranging internet life forms. Right, so it's not the entire internet that has become alive, but pieces of code that have become alive on the internet in some meaningful way and move through the internet. We've been talking about that since the first worm attacks back in the late eighties. That would be different from the second one, in in what sense that it's that it's that it's it's, uh, it's an it, designed it's it's an emergent it's an it's either an emergent thing or it's something that wasn't created by purpose might have been accidentally created. Right. Yeah, thank you. Um, so there's another one which would be the um, uh, extension of, I mean, if you can think about it, your consciousness and just groups of human beings, you know, like the U.S. government or, um, you know, Netflix or some other group like that. And they're going to take, use the, um, the cloud to ex extend themselves. So they'll be kind of like somewhere in between the AI and the extension of an individual. Yeah, that's a, um, a level of abstraction perhaps more complex than corporations that uh, but the different distinction between a corporation and a and a country or nation state are kind of blurring it's and, also artificial to think of these things as distinct things as independent entities because yeah. they actually all work together and the notion of the gestalt here i think is very important because what we're seeing is the gestalt we're not seeing one of these things or that they're competing or can be individually looked at they're working together and maybe that togetherness, that gestalt actually gives more than the independent parts in terms of what we're trying to describe. In fact, that's the difficulty of mapping language onto what we see or what we're trying to describe here. And that's sort of the rainforest analogy or uh, ocean ecosystem analogy. I think what you've summarized, those alternatives are come quite close to the four alternatives that Werner Vinge had in his 1993 paper where um, Ray Kurzweil really just picked up one of those four alternatives, namely the moment when computers will exceed human intelligence. But the other three, to me, were much more interesting. And the first was this idea of augmented uh, individual intelligence. But then, to me, the most exciting and where I think you might be headed is the human-machine uh, interaction, which is so it's not all humans or all machines, but, but how do we work together? What was the third? Uh, there were four. There were four. There was. Can you use the microphone? Sorry. Now I'm not sure I'm going to get him exactly right on this, but I, I actually contacted him because I wanted to cite him and I wanted to make sure 
that my hypothesis that Ray Kurzweil had picked only one was, you know, that he felt that there were these other three. Um, so the one was the augmented individual, the prosthesis, um, and the second one was the the the, the linked, um, pretty much what uh, Kevin Kelly has said, and the third was the the uh, human machine interaction, and, the and fourth? then finally the. The Ray Kurzweil. Oh, and the fourth the is... the moment, just the machine. Yeah. yeah. So, some people refer to that as, as the hard takeoff, um, which is somehow all of a sudden machines are smarter and there's no humans inside the Internet to turn them off or make them different. Other... Different thoughts? Ideas? I see biting of lips, raising of hands. Anyone? I I think there was something I touched on a little bit, which is the in a complex system like a human, there's not just these fast staccato electrical signals that are our consciousness. Like, how conscious we are or not has to do with our nutritional health and our how much oxygen we have and whether or not we've had a glass of wine. And uh, there are subtle things that can have huge impacts on our state of consciousness that, um, you know, what are the equivalent of those things in a computer or on an Internet? Um, like the lack of electricity um, or, or what exactly? One of the other things, I mean, I think primarily we're, we're right now conversing with metaphors, which I think are, are very powerful. But um, as this guy was saying, it's certainly not science. And for science, you, you would really want a um, falsifiable test. And one of the questions that I've been trying to ask is, you know, if there was... Not, not consciousness, but if there was intelligence on the internet, if the internet was had emergent intelligence, what would be a test that would be convincing to a skeptic, which is how science would run? Please take LSD and answer these three questions afterwards. Yeah, that doesn't work for it, it science. It would affect a human much differently than a... Right. Computer. So one of, the, one of the interesting things is that SETI, which is a search for extraterrestrial um, intelligence doesn't actually even have a definition of intelligence. They stopped looking for intelligence long ago because it was basically, there was no um, criteria. So they're looking for anonymous singles, signals. They're just looking for things, that patterns of any sort. And if you apply that, if you did what, we, what I was calling a search for, for internet intelligence, if you had a program called the search for internet intelligence, and you were trying to find whether there was intelligence right now on the internet, looking for those kind of signals is really not meaningful because there is so much human I mean the whole thing is just those kinds of signals to begin with so you're left with uh, 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 wrestling with a definition of well if there was if less setting aside consciousness you just said if there was looking for intelligence on the internet that was on a different level um, what would we look for what would be a test that would be falsifiable and and adequate for a skeptic. And it's um, I don't have an answer, but that would be something that perhaps 
people here might have a suggestion on um, one idea is to make it look I mean make it look like these kinds of signals but try to find it at a level that we should not expect to find it if it was just human um, or else it's coming up with a definition some criteria of intelligence and you would think that people who work with animals or other things would have a test but there isn't actually a one I mean we look at the crows and we say oh yeah that's but but that's not scientific in any sense of the word so it may be that people here might have more knowledge about that and know about a um, an elementary test for intelligence that we could use um, so anyway that's my that's my call for uh, requests that's that's a valuable point I think as you know that uh, Ray Kurzweil and Mitch Kapoor have a long now bet um, as far as whether or not uh, uh, a computer intelligence will be indistinguishable from a human by the year 2029. Uh, and they've made a much more rigorous uh, test than the Turing test as far as how it uh, be distinguished whether the computer intelligence were um, in, uh, intelligent than a human. So it couldn't be as simply tricked. But the rules of that intelligence test are on the Long Now bet site um, where uh, Ray Kurzweil is betting that by 2029, uh, some extension of something like Watson or Google will have exceeded a human. And Mitch Kapor, who um, has a background in psychology as well, uh, is betting that it, it by 2029, uh, you still won't be able to trick a human. Um, uh, partly premised on humans are exquisitely good at judging the kind of integrity and sincerity and reality of other humans for breeding and other purposes. And so for a machine to fake that is more difficult than an optimist would think. So, so let me just say something about I'm on the panel that has to decide that, okay? So, so that, that's, that's our site. That, that decision will come down to me and some other folks. So help me with a definition so we can decide that. If I may. The banks beat the Turing test about a decade ago. So I frequently... So <laughs> I know. I frequently talk when I'm speaking over the phone to someone claiming to be representing a bank and ask them whether they're a human or a machine. And sometimes you have to do that five or six times before either the machine identifies itself or the human identifies itself. I think what's interesting here is for the sceptics... You, it's very difficult to turn a sceptic. And certainly if you develop artificial life simulations, if you develop bottom-up artificial intelligence, many of us have just left this discussion because you're dealing with perceptions which become beliefs, which become points of argument, which are so completely orthogonal to the work that we are doing or trying to do that it's far more interesting actually to continue to do our work than to engage with these kind of arguments, because there are beliefs here which go beyond the experiential you know, understanding that you have actually working with these simulation systems. And unfortunately, the prize that you've talked about has lost course with people who are actually doing you know, continued development and research in this area for exactly that reason. 
But I don't know if it's lost course. I mean, Ray Kurzweil is working at Google trying to muster all the resources of Google to win that prize. Well, um, <laughs> as a simulator, I'm saying it's just lost course from my experience. Yeah. There's a number of the reasons that have been discussed this evening. Interesting that you've had the experience of calling banks and them pretending to be humans. I have the opposite problem of humans calling my banks pretending to be me. Well, yes, and that is interesting. Uh, <laughs> any additional questions? Any additional points? I think the uh, I think the bet's passed. I, I think it's ridiculous, and I think the nature. No, I think why, well, I don't think, I don't think it's an either or, which is the first part of the problem. I don't think there are two distinct possibilities here. And I don't think Ray's argument represents what I've experienced developing simulation. I think there's something that's gone on that's completely independent of the bet. And the bet is basically a linguistic argument between two groups that have nothing to do with the experience that I've had and the experience that other, you know, folks in a variety of fields have had. It's become a conversation in and of itself. So, you know, two people made a bet, and we'll have, you know, whether the bet is valid, whether someone else thinks the bet is stupid, doesn't matter. There's still a bet between two people that we have to adjudicate. And so um, the bet exists independently of other people's opinions of the bet. So um, if you were, if, so if you were on the panel to decide the bet, you would have to give the money to one side or the other. So, so we can't escape that. No, you can't. There are plenty of prizes that have never been awarded, plenty of bets that have never been divided. The whole notion that this is something that is very real exists to you because you're a part of it. It doesn't exist to, you know, the simulation community, people that are doing independent yeah. work. It's an independent thing. Yeah. So I'm asking if anybody else here would have any suggestions about how we could... Uh, I know you don't want to cooperate with the bet, but maybe there are other people who would have some suggestions about... Uh, uh, a way that we could identify uh, either intelligence on the internet, emergent intelligence, or um, any other uh, criteria, scientific falsifiable criteria. Do you have a suggestion right here? Is this? Okay. I'm just saying that if you have a, a bet and you haven't figured out how to settle it, then you probably don't really have a bet either. I, I think what I find most interesting about the bet, though, is it's from the perspective of the human, that the human has to determine whether the machine is intelligent or not. And what the funny thing is, you've got a lot of corporations developing software to determine what the intent of the human is inside an organization. And that's the other perspective of that argument, is can the intelligence in the machine determine if that's a human intent or, or uh, another machine intent? And, and until you address both perspectives of that argument, you're not really addressing, I, I think, the heart of the bet. And to kind of reinforce that point a little bit into, I think, one of Tom's original points at the beginning, it's almost as if the question of, is it conscious, is it not, is it alive, is it not, in some ways can become academic because the reality is, in general, people, unless they're doing pure research, are building products and these products will leverage either lifelike attributes or intelligence or consciousness attributes some of which may be emergent some of which may be programmed but i think that just like you know we don't worry about whether a car is like a horse or not although we do use horsepower still 
<laughs> which a horse country at least yeah, and horsepower is only 0.8 <laughs> horse which doesn't make any sense but so in that same sense it, these intelligent programs devices whatever they end up being will exist and they will serve a purpose sometimes they will serve their own purpose over time most of the time they will serve the purpose of the human being who created them and they may be alive they may be not yeah, Star Wars explored this. Are, are the droids alive, right? And it's you know, and the droids are more human, you know, C-3PO and R2-D2, than the human characters. That's one of the main tensions in the Star Wars saga. So it's this idea of I don't think this question will ever be fully answered, and maybe it's not even meaningful. Well, I think that's the key word in your point above uh, uh, pulling back to SETI and their. Um, going to signals and the question of whether the the signal is actually, uh, there's a pattern that can be recognized. And if there's a pattern that can be recognized, does that pattern have meaning? And if that pattern has meaning, was that meaning ascribed by the sender or by the receiver? And it seems that you have to at least start there. Well, so, so there's uh, one bit of help to that test is adding some biological psychiatry criterion in um, that uh, would a human would respond differently to than a uh, emergent intelligence. And it doesn't mean that the intelligence might be smarter at Jeopardy, but it wouldn't necessarily be the best date. So it's there are different criterion as far as what parameter is of value. Um, and the, the SETI thing sort of breaks to mind. There's an explanation to Fermi's paradox about why we can't see intelligent life in other locations, which uh, John Smart and others call the transcension hypothesis, which is uh, as complexity as evolves and as things become more and more complex, they can either uh, speciate into two ways. They can either go explosive like we are now where we're spending rockets and sending TV and radar up into space and all kinds of signals, signals everywhere. That's what we're doing. And so we're assuming that's what other species or other life elsewhere would be doing. An alternate speciation branch is things becoming quieter, uh, calmer, smaller, uh, less easy to detect, or the transcension hypothesis is uh, as complexity gets more, it, it actually continues to increase in complexity, but becomes much more efficient and quieter. So as the internet has gone from wi wireless to fiber, for example, it's a lot harder to see from space. Um, and that uh, the complexity of the chips and the complexity of things inside a, a phone are getting increasingly complex and smaller, but much, much smarter and uh, sophisticated in a way, but more difficult to see from afar. So it's quite possible that the path for more complicated life forms than we have on this planet is to things that are much quieter and more efficient and almost invisible. So the search for them might be more difficult than we think. I think what we've done here is started a discussion that needs to be continued. But I think there are probably, as I noted, associated with the Internet Archive, participants that would like to have their you know, issues raised independently of the 
carbon life forms in front of us this evening. What I would like to do, because a number of you know each other and you've used uh, your first names, if you could give a, for the folks who've spoken this evening, if you could give your name and an introduction for people who are listening in so they can look up your work and get a sense of who you are. Hi, I'm Ben, and I'm a software engineer. That sounds like I'm, I'm an alcoholic. Um, um, and um, I'm just kind of interested in artificial life, and I've been working on my own artificial life simulation, a little bit like Polyworld or Noble Ape, and um, I think that's very cool what you guys are doing, and that's why I'm here. Uh, I'm Kevin Kelly. I wrote a book called What Technology Wants. Um, and I'm also sort of on the, uh, I was one of the founders of the Long Bets site. So. My name is David. I've been doing research originally in virtual reality, doing some original experimentation in artificial life back in the 90s, more recently doing voice controlled, um, contextual based systems for cars and televisions. Uh, my name is John. I'm an engineer, and uh, for the past several years, I've been uh, building intelligent devices that are in people's homes today. Do I have one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm Jamie Faye Fenton. I'm uh, also a software engineer. Been interested in artificial life for at least as long as Reese has. Uh, I'm Zan Gill, and I'm writing a book which uh, spawned uh, a second book, and so I'm now writing two simultaneously. Um, and the first is entitled, um, uh, If Microbes Begat Mind, and the subtitle is From Origins of Life to Emergence of Intelligence. And the second one is called What Daedalus Told Darwin, um, a Darwin's Dilemma and the Struggle for Existence. So I was obviously talking about things I care a lot about. I am Leslie, a computer engineer. Most of my life I was developing distributed systems such as the cloud today and the context-aware location-specific systems. And my pet project is uh, an IT definition of the human persona, whether it's consciousness or identity or personhood, however we call it. And uh, one uh, particular... Uh, a way that's intriguing is, is building a bridge between something like a Google Glass and the biological neocortex. I think that would give an answer to those questions. So, uh, I'm Reese Jones, and um, uh, you can find out more about me on Facebook, but I am uh, help start uh, Singularity University. I'm a trustee at the Santa Fe Institute. I'm on the Genetics Advisory Council med school and I uh, do a lot of startup things uh, especially in synthetic biology uh, uh, with a DNA laser printer making uh, uh, turning bits into atoms uh, and making um, uh, programmable life uh, programming in DNA and I had the privilege of introducing myself at the start of this I'm Tom Barbele this has been part of a meetup group there are a number of folks that contribute uh, through mailing lists and Facebook and LinkedIn and wide variety of sources. 
But if you would like to attend this, and I'm speaking to folks who aren't here, um, the way to do that is to go to meetup.com and look up Conscious in the Cloud. We are currently based in the South Bay, but we might be doing things in the North Bay. We might be doing things all over. Um, so please get in contact through Meetup or Facebook or a wide variety of means. Um, and uh, thank you to everyone this evening for uh, coming to attend this in Carbon. Thanks to Tom and to uh, Netflix for hosting us. <laughs>